Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Jennifer Yerimeyeva. Today, our discussion takes us to the banks of the Volga, Europe's longest river. But it is through Russia that the Volga flows from the Valdai Hills in the north down to the Caspian Sea in the south. On its banks, many of Russia's greatest cities grew from small garrison forts or trading posts into large urban centers. In her new book, The Volga, A History of Russia's Greatest River, published this year by Yale University Press, Emeritus Professor of International History at the London School of Economics, Janet Hartley, looks at the role of the Volga in Russian history from earliest recording history to the present day. The result is a very fresh approach to the familiar developments of statehood, trade, religious, cultural, and political thought. But it also moves us to examine other aspects of Russian history, no less important, by looking at the ways in which the Volga both unites and divides the country in physical as well as psychological ways. I'm very much looking forward to getting into these and other aspects of the book with Professor Hartley, and I'm so pleased that she was able to join me today. Professor Hartley, a very warm welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you. Before we embark down uh, the Volga on our voyage, so to speak, let's look at the origins of this book, um, which is such a unique examination of Russian history. You've taken a similar approach in your previous book about Siberia, and I wonder what vol- drew you to the Volga um, as this, uh, the subject of this most recent book. Well, at the simplest level, the Volga is one of the great rivers of the world, along with the, the Mississippi, the Nile, the Danube. But there were, of course, more intellectual reasons for that. My early work was really on the 18th century, early 19th century, Russian history and Anglo-Russian relations, where I, w- I was really looking at how Russia acquired great power status, and then what the costs of that were to state and society in Russia. So broadly speaking, I was looking at how empire functioned, how you held on to such a vast territory with such a small bureaucracy, how you governed given the size of Russia, the diversity of its population. And I understood that the only way to do that really was bottom up, to see how people lived, how they related to the state, how they related to each other. 
And that's what I did in the Siberia book, which came out in, in 2014. I looked at how state and people interacted and how people within Siberia interacted. And I think the Volga, in many ways, is more interesting than that. It is a region, but it's not such a clearly defined region. And it's something which tells you about trade, about diversity, about borderlands, about identity. So that was the main reason. There are a couple of other reasons for doing it. One is that after 30 years of teaching Russian history, I did feel it was right to write a book that appealed not just to my peers and colleagues, but to a broader audience, or audience having uh, taught for 30 years. And there's also an element of fun in it as well. <laughs> I think we're, we're very good, particularly in the British academic system, of taking the fun out of research. And this was a fun book to write. So this, that was why I did it. And and it, it seems that when I read your book, I, I have a sense of motion that you are covering a great deal of physical ground in your research, um, as well as gaining a mastery of uh, subjects outside academia, um, medicine, uh, technology of hauling and shipping. Um, did How did those aspects of research come into the book? Well, everything from steamships to sturgeon, if you mean. <laughs> I did have to read very widely. Some of it was out of my comfort zone. I did have to consult friends and colleagues when I, I wasn't sure outside my, my comfort zone. Uh, but, you know, extensive reading is, is part of the, the fun of being a, a historian. It's not as if historians hadn't noticed the Volga before. So there were a lot of books on the Volga, but not one quite like this. I had to read a lot of specific books on particular towns in the Volga, particular events, things like civil war, collectivization. So I had to do that basic reading. But I've tried throughout the book to make it a story and to bring it to life. And to do that, I've, I've tried to use other sources as well. Memoirs where I can, I've used. I've made particular use of travel accounts, British travel accounts, because the British were fascinated by the diversity of the population on the Volga and also the trade prospects. But also early accounts, Arab and Persian accounts, German scientific accounts. And I think that that gives it a, a life that otherwise the book wouldn't have. And then I am a real historian at heart. Uh, I'm not going to pretend that this is something that I spent 10 years working in the archives on. But I did go to the archives in Kazan and work there. And I got materials from Samara and from Yaroslav as well. And I tried to get materials for the imperial period which looked at this diversity of population, how people interacted and how the state functioned. So it's a combination uh, of materials for the book. I'm sure I could have worked on it for another 10 years, but you, you have to stop at some point. <laughs> well, I think, I think all of the materials come really to great life in, in the book. Um, but let's, let's um, discover the Volga uh, now. And for some of our listeners who may not be as familiar with Russia's sort of vast geography, I wonder if you take us on a quick tour of the river um, from the tiny trickle in the north to the mighty river uh, down in the south. And along the way, uh, some of the cities and towns that have risen on his banks, you've mentioned a few already, um, but try and, try and give us a sense of, of how the river flows. Well, thank you. This is the point where, of course, I'd like to have a, a map. But as you mm. said, it, it rises in the Valdai Hills, which is sort of between Moscow and St. Petersburg. Most sources of river aren't terribly interesting. It's a puddle in the ground. 
and this is a puddle in the ground, but it's made a little bit more interesting by the fact that there's a, a small chapel there and it's been sacralised, it's been blessed. And that, in a way, is a very sort of appropriate start, I think, for a river that then is so symbolic for Russia. It then flows east, town of Tver, and then Rybinsk, which is important because it's on a great big reservoir now, but it was the way in which the Volga connected with the canal system and the river system, which then took goods out from uh, St. Petersburg and the Baltic. It flows further east to Nizhny Novgorod, which was the site of a great fair in the 19th century, and then to Kazan. These are places I, I keep coming back to. Kazan, which is the capital of Tatarstan, and was conquered by Ivan the Terrible in, in the 16th century. From there, it begins to go south, Chebuksari, capital of the Chuvash Republic. And then the river takes a great bend to the east, which was a great haunt of pirates in the 18th century, to Samara, which was also an alternative capital for Russia during the Civil War. South now to Saratov, which was the centre for grain, but it was also the centre for German colonists who were invited to Russia in the 18th century. Volgograd, probably better known as Stalingrad, but before that as Tsaritsyn, nothing to do with the Tsar, it's the name of the, the river, which is south of, of Saratov, and then finally south to Astrakhan, which is on the delta, which goes out to the Caspian Sea. That's a brief geographical coverage. It runs the wrong way. The river runs the wrong way. It runs north <laughs> and south, but most of the goods go south to north. The Caspian is in closed sea, of course. The goods go up to the north to supply Moscow, St. Petersburg, the heartland of Russia, and then exported from St. Petersburg. And that and that north south um, trade problem is um, a big a big part. I mean, when you you sort of describe the um, the real physical effort it takes to get a, a ship up the Volga, um, I, I had never considered that before. That's right. Although what struck me when I went up the Volga is that there are very few towpaths. In fact, I mm. think a, a lot of the the pulling of the ships was pulling off sandbanks rather than pulling it all the way upstream. Uh, it's not the most practical way of doing it. It's easier to, to, to move the anchor up and then to, to wind around the windlass up, up to the anchor. But it is a great image of the Volga, of course, mm. and, and it, it combines that element of prosperity, if you like, trade, along with suffering, parallel suffering with the people who had to drag the boat up. Well, indeed, and, and we'll come to the, the famous painting uh, in a bit. But let's um, let's return to, to the book and, and its structure and it struck me uh, when I was reading it that um, you are covering all the major milestones of Russian history, but they are more in the background to the bigger story you're telling us about the sweep of social history that is playing out uh, along the banks of the Volga. And I was particularly delighted with the first couple of chapters of the book that covers some of the um, people you've already mentioned, um, the earliest inhabitants of the Volga, and I and I believe there's a lot of scholarship um, coming about these days um, that around particularly the Bulgars, which which makes this era really really fascinating. It's a great meeting of different peoples um, and a very dynamic society, it seems to me. And I wonder if you'd walk us through those a little bit. Well, I had to start somewhere. It's difficult to start with nomadic society. It's difficult for me because I'm really an imperial Russian historian, but I, I did want to make the obvious case really that this wasn't always a Russian river, that other people lived along the river 
and that the river was, was central to their existence. So although it's difficult to talk about states in a modern concept, I started with the Khazars in the, in the 7th century and moved to the Bulgars in the 9th century onwards, really, partly because in both those cases there were urban centres. You could talk about an urban society, and those urban centres were on the Volga, uh, the capital of the, the Khazar state, Ital, is the name that the name they gave to the river Volga, is probably somewhere north of Astrakhan. Bulgar itself still exists. It's about 100 miles south of, of, of Kazan. So the Volga was central to both those states, central to the trade they had, whether it was furs, which are very important, weapons, silver, coinage, spices, but also central to their control. They existed because they wanted to control the river. And conflicts which took place, firstly between the Khazars and the Bulgars, but also between the Khazars and Kievan Rus, and then the Mongol Empire and later Khanates and the Russian state, Muscovy, were really about who controlled the river. So the river was central to what we would call state building, to the dynamism, if you like, of both the existence of those early states and then to the dynamism of Moscow and its conquest of Bulgar. Bulgars doubly interesting, I think, for two, two reasons. Firstly, we have very good accounts from Arab accounts, mainly, of, of the Bulgars. It's difficult for me in particular to look at a, a society where there isn't a written account of how they, they lived. But we do have physical descriptions of the Bulgar elite with tall hats and how they, they lived, and indeed a, a Vikings coming down the Volga at the same time. But Bulgars also important for contemporary identity issues of the Volga Tatars, because they identify themselves with Bulgar. Bulgar became an Islamic state, or the elite became Muslim in, in the late 10th, 10th century. And uh, Tatars today in Tatarstan look to Bulgar as their intellectual route, rather than looking to the Mongols in the east. Mm. And Bulgar itself, which is a, a, an important archaeological site with an excellent museum, also has a now has a, a large mosque on the outskirts of, of this archaeological site, and, and it's become a, a centre for Muslim identity, for Tatar identity. So I think that that's why Bulgar is so important. It, it was an early state. Uh, we don't know that much about it. We know it was vigorous in trade and it had cities, but it was destroyed by the Mongols. But it was actually still important in the 18th century. It was used as sort of ruins to show the sort of romantic vision of Russia. And it's important today in terms of identity. And, and that's why I had to give that introduction to what is essentially an account of imperial Russian control of the Volga. Indeed. And and I think in those early chapters, we, we begin to get a sense of the... Um, multi-confessional aspect of the country. Um, and then that sort of spring, springs through a, a, a marvelous through line of, of your book, which is the tension between Russian Orthodox Christianity and the other major religions, um, particularly Islam, but also um, pagans and Jews and, and then later Lutherans. Um, and in a way, the Volga seems to be kind of ground zero for this tension, even today. Um, and I wonder how that conflict plays out um, in, in your mind? Yes, I think that's true. And, and I think from my point of view, it was the most interesting part of the book for me me to write. It was the part where I found most archival material and, and really got a sense of what it was like at a, a local level, that you might get something which looked quite trivial, 
one or two families in the village who'd converted, say, from Islam to Russian Orthodoxy and then wanted to reconvert or allegedly wanted to reconvert in, back in the 19th century could generate hundreds of pages of bureaucratic administration. And in the end, the family might be split. They might be sent somewhere else. So the human cost of that was, was quite important, I think. Essentially, what we're looking at is waves of conversion. From the time when Ivan the Terrible took Kazan in 1552, really through to the 19th century, depending partly on the characteristics of the Tsars and their own personalities, partly on how much Muslims could be seen as a fifth column, uh, conflict between Russia and Ottoman Turkey, fears really, fears of the Russian state about its lack of stability, that mm -hmm. just a, a small incident some families reconverting could be seen as a as something which could actually challenge the whole nature of, of the state. So I've tried to look at that process and, and look at what happens on human terms. I've also tried to look at the other side of it, where, where there were contacts across between Orthodox and Muslims. Easier to do, I think, in an urban setting, where mm. there were contacts amongst elite merchants. Not so many contacts at, at a village level, fewer than I thought I would find. I mean, some, of course, the foods the people ate, the clothes they wore, the boots they wore, the ceremonies. But actually, villages were pretty separate. And I, I was struck when I was in Kazan. I went on a, a trip to, to Bolgar and I was taken by an academic who was a, a Tartar. And as we came south of Kazan, I suppose about 30 miles south of Kazan, she said, that's the first Tartar village. And indeed it was. I could see by the mosque and, and by the, the paintings, the way in which the, the fences were painted. It was 30 kilometres from Kazan because Ivan the Terrible had expelled the Tartars even, even to this day. from Kazan in 1552. <laughs> so everything had happened since. Mass industrialization, collectivization, modernization, And still this first village was there 30 kilometres outside Kazan. So I think that that aspect just tells you the sensitivities, really, the difficulties the Russian state encountered in, in trying to impose control. And then, as you say, there are other groups as well. Catherine the Great, German, invited settlers from Europe to come to Russia. And it was Germans who came, Catholics and Protestants, and they settled on the Volga, round about both sides of the Volga, round about Saratov in the, the middle to, to lower Volga. There was a Jewish population in the Volga. There were Roma. Uh, there were Baptists before the First World War. And I think mm. that all that sort of complexity on the ground, how the state tried to deal with it, how people dealt with it on, on a daily level, is something that I found very, very interesting. So, yes, I think it is, it is important. And it hasn't gone away. Mm. Today, there's still questions about Tartar identity, relations between Tartars and Russia, Russians. Kazan's 50-50 now, a Russian Tartar town. It was much more... Russian in the Soviet period. How did they find their identity? Well, it's an obvious sort of Muslim identity as much as anything else, and then a, a linguistic and an ethnic one. Probably less so for some of the other minorities on, on the Volga, but Chuvash, some of them have tried to discover a past that goes before conversion to Orthodox Christianity. They've looked to their Turkic past, they've looked to their animist pagan past. So I think it's an ongoing issue, but it's one that certainly Imperial Russia never really solved. Mm. 
I always think of the the um, German settlers of Catherine the Great. I do a lot of food writing, and so I uh, I know that they are responsible for two great aspects of Russian cuisine, which is potatoes and mustard. <laughs> It's surprising they how isolated these. they are. You, you. I mean, I, I think until they actually had to uh, participate in military service from the 1870s onwards, I'm not sure how many of them even learnt Russian. They seem to be be able to to keep completely separate from from the Russian population and preserve German habits, German language that had long gone in the in the German states. It's just a very very strange history and a very tragic history, of course. It is tragic. And you cover that in your book as well. Um, with all these different um, ethnicities, uh, different religions, um, one of the interesting things you do in the book is to show the way the river both unites and divides the country. Um, in Russia's earliest history, the river seems to divide the land from the east, the west to the east, but unite it um, north and south. I wonder if you agree, that's a sweeping generalization, um, but I wonder if that's something you you agree with it's a pretty good generalization i'd say <laughs> it's certainly north to south I, I would say unites in several ways trade is the obvious one most of the trade does go from south to north some goes from east to west and then uh, out, out to the north and i think that that clearly unites all the way up and then from the 18th century onwards it's supplemented by this canal system that brings the goods out from st petersburg Trade is a positive thing. Uh, not everything that goes north to south or up the river or down the river is positive. Disease goes up the river. It almost always originates in Astrakhan in the imperial period and then goes up the river. And I think also, although it's less easy to quantify, that there's, there's a sense all the way up the river that they share this great river, that they're all on the Volga. You know, I, I'm struck that taxi drivers, when you arrive in somewhere like Tver or Kazan, want to show you the Volga. Well, you know, <laughs> I have a lot of visitors to London. I don't always show them the Thames. It, it, it seems to be a, a defining, uniting feature. The east to west, I think, is true, but I think it's only really true from Kazan and further south. In the heartland mm. of Russia, Tver, Yaroslav, you, you don't uh, get a sense of that. Catherine the Great went to Kazan in 1767 and she wrote to Voltaire and she said, I am in Asia. She's completely <laughs> wrong, of course. She was in Europe. But culturally to her, she was in Asia because there was a Tartar quarter in, in Kazan. There, were, there was a mosque and what we would regard as a rather gruesome event. Uh, lots of, of ladies from different ethnic groups came and danced in front of her at the governor's house and she saw all their exotic costumes. So culturally, she felt she was in that divide. And I think I felt the same when I went to the Volga. I had to go there, had to see it. And certainly south of, of Kazan, you see that the land is different from one side and the other side. The, the western side, Europe, if you like, is uh, fairly lush, quite hilly. I mean, it, it's civilised, if you like. It's Europe. The eastern side, even though it's not Asia, feels like Asia. You look as if the steppe is there stretching to Kazakhstan, stretching south of the, of the Urals. It's much more arid. It's flatter. And certainly those German settlers who could be dumped either side of the Volga in the 1760s with no choice, the ones who were placed on the eastern side felt disadvantaged. They felt mm -hmm. threatened by nomadic raiders. The land was more arid. It was more civilised, if you like, on the European side. So I think down below Kazan, there's a great sense of, of divide. And then, of course, the river is just so 
wide. I mean, mm. I know you have the Mississippi, but we don't have the Mississippi or the Volga in, in Britain. I'm, I'm just used to, to going into a town and seeing bridge after bridge after bridge crossing the river. And of course, going up the Volga, you saw very few bridges simply because it was so wide at, at so many points that it was just very difficult to go across, dangerous. It could have its own ecosystem. There could be storms on the Volga. So it was much easier for people either side to trade on that side. And even when the railways were built, they, they also served to divide in many ways because it was much easier to build railway lines up one side, not the other side, than to build a railway bridge. So hmm. I think there is that very strong sense of divide. And certainly, Kazan and below, the, the towns are really built on one side of the river only. And that's simply because of the of the width of the river. So I, it does divide, and I think that it, that is a a theme that comes throughout the book. The river is a uniting force. Intellectually, it's a uniting force, but it's also very much a, a geographical, a physical divide. The people who live one side and the other. And the 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 opposite, the east bank um, attracts. Lots of what I think of as as sort of um, frontier brigands, um, and and you uh, have a very wonderful chapter about the the Cossacks and and various um, outlaws who are drawn to the the Volga. What is it about the river? Why why do they head there um, to sort of escape the confines of of what their life would have been in in Russia? I like that chapter. It was the first chapter I wrote. I felt sort oh. of at ease with with Cossacks. <laughs> <laughs> The irony is, in a way, that, uh, that there is a small group of Volga Cossacks, but they're not really the ones who caused the trouble. <laughs> the ones who caused the trouble came from the Don. And Cossacks are themselves a great frontier fugitive society. They're, they're peasants, serfs, who originally escaped from their owners, ethnically Russian or, or Ukrainian. Uh, they're not a, a separate ethnic group. They came to the Volga simply because they are river people. They did settle along the great rivers, the Dnieper, uh, and in particular the Don, and then crossed to the Volga. Uh, they were boat people, uh, and they could move up and down the river, almost with impunity. There are lots of sandbanks on the Volga that you can hide behind. Valuable mm. goods are going up and down. Cossacks, pirates robbed them. You could sack towns almost before the Russian government noticed. <laughs> <laughs> so late 17th century, Stenka Razin sacks Astrakhan and then Pugachev in the late 18th century sacks Kazan and Saratov. And it, it sort of exposed the, the limitations, if you like, of imperial power. They, they could normally beat Cossacks if they met them in the open with a regular army against a, 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 an armed rabble, in effect. But you just couldn't track them down. You just couldn't stop them. You didn't know where they were. And, and I think that illustrates a, a great deal about uh, the nature, the limitations, if you like, of, of power of the Russian state, at least through to the early 19th century. And I think the other thing about Cossacks, I know we're going to talk about literature later, but there's an alternative literature of the Volga that comes from the Cossacks. And that is of, of the river as a place for rebels and revolt. Uh, people, the river can hide the Cossacks, can can protect the rebels, uh, and there's also a, a theme of suffering as well. I think, which comes through with, with Cossacks and comes through that that sort of literature, including Chuvash literature. Which uh, surprisingly, I, I found some Chuvash literature in English, which was on the Pugachev revolt, glorifying Pugachev after the event. So that stays that the legends remain right through to the 19th century. And, and it is another aspect, I think, a cultural aspect of the, of the Volga, which, which is very important. 
and that sort of that sort of sense of freedom um of kind of absence of 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 the long arm of the russian law has a has a um meaning in the sense of russia's the russian state's attempt to tame the volga this is a recurring theme throughout your book um and i think for for historians of russia we immediately think of ivan the terrible's conquest of Kazan and Astrakhan and Catherine the Great. We've already mentioned her her epic progress south. Mm-hmm. Um, what does it mean to tame the Volga and then and and now um, in the in the present day? I think you could say that most empires or, or most powerful countries set out to tame nature. I mean, you know, building the Siberian railway, Trans-Siberian railway is taming nature. Building a, a railway from top to bottom of Africa is is taming nature. I think in the the Russian case, it's very much about control of the borderlands, control of the empire. And you're, you're right, it goes back to Ivan the Terrible, because there are folk tales about Ivan the Terrible and how difficult it was for his troops to cross the river north of Kazan and how he tamed it in a very Ivan sort of way by sending his executioner <laughs> there with a whip who whipped the river until it's, until it's uh, uh, submitted to the Tsar. Catherine's a little bit more subtle. Uh, in her case... Uh, the Volga has to recognise her as its ruler. And there are odes in the late 18th century which talk about the waters being calmed as, as she does this progress. But it is very symptomatic that she chooses Kazan. It's her first trip in Russia, and she's a German princess. And she chose to be in Kazan to assert that Russian ownership, control over a, an ethnically non-Russian area. And Peter the Great did the same before Catherine. He went down to Astrakhan, he looked at the garrison, he was very interested in the economy, the science of, of, of Astrakhan, what sort of plants might grow there. And that's also a form of control. So I think it's definitely there controlling uh, the empire. In the Soviet period, I think there's even more that emphasis. I think it's important that the Soviets show that they can do what the Tsars couldn't do. They could complete the canal system and link the Volga with Rostov-on-Don and link the Volga with Moscow, as they put it at the time, so the Volga uh, lapped on the steps of the Kremlin. <laughs> and the fact this was done with forced labour is, is the rather unpleasant side of it, but it, but it was a way of showing that the Tsars couldn't completely control the rivers, but the Soviets could. And then they controlled it in, in different ways through massive hydroelectric power, so they could actually control the flow of the river. So I think controlling the river, I mean, there is a a sense of the state controlling science and big science controlling the river. And it's economic, but it's much more than economic. It it is an assertion of state power and a way in which you project yourself as so powerful that you can even control something like the River Volga. Uh, And that's true of of the Imperial Russia and and it's true of uh, uh, the Soviet Union as well. And if you, if for any of our listeners who've who've ever sailed on the Volga, will know that m- many many hours are spent in locks. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you have that marvelous passage towards the end of the book where a young man, a young man, is talking to an older man, and the older man says, "You know, we've always lived on the banks of the of Mother Volga," and the young man says, "We're going to make the river move in the opposite direction." That's right. Um, which was very telling, I think. Well, let's let's um, stay on the river and and look at at the way trade 
um, is another through line through the book from the very beginnings of of, of Itil um, right up till now. Um, goods are moving, as you say, from south to north. And I think many of our listeners will be familiar with the the song of the Volga boatman or the wonderful painting um, Ilya Repin's Barge Haulers on the Volga. Um, and both both are parts of those 19th century boom in trade. Um, let's talk about, tra- t- tell us a little bit about um, the development of trade along the Volga and, and what are some of the byproducts or, or legacies today of this? Well, it is the key trading route in, in European Russia. I think of a number of things. I, I mean, I could list goods going up and down. They, they do change, of course. And I think one of the key goods in, in the 18th century, the 19th century is, is grain. The Volga was a great grain producing area. And the goods had to get up to St. Petersburg because St. Petersburg is not a good grain producing area. It's an artificial city. And unless it could get grain from the Volga, the city couldn't feed itself. So it's a fundamentally important trade, not just for exports, but for supplying basic needs in in Moscow and St. Petersburg. And the result of it is that big cities develop along the Volga. The Repin painting is, is an interesting one because I spent some time staring at it and wondering mm. what was wrong with it until I, I realised that what was wrong with it was that Repin is a wonderful, wonderful artist, but he's obviously never been on a boat because the, the rope that they're pulling goes right off the top of the main mast. Mm. So if you pulled it that way, it, it would snap. Ah. <laughs> so it, it's, it's not about the reality of it. And then I think what's interesting is also what else is in the picture. There's a steamship in the picture. So these men are are suffering. This was in the 1870s. They're they're suffering, they're downtrodden. And this is a reflection of the the nature of the Russian state, if you like, that people are suffering. But there's also progress there behind them with this steamship. And in the the first version, that uh, the first draft that Repin had, he didn't have the steamship. He had picnickers on the bank. And I think in some ways that would be even better because that would have shown that while these people were hauling the boat, you had people enjoying themselves and the Volga was becoming a, a source for, for tourism as well. So it's a picture that on all sorts of levels tells you things about the Volga. But it did lead to uh, prosperity, industrialization, and then all the problems that come with that. And although the Volga isn't the key area in, in the Russian Revolution, it, it was important in terms of uh, factory building, tensions that arose, boom towns like Tsaritsyn, uh, later Stalingrad. Uh, that, that was important. And then tensions spill over in 1917. And there's a, a sort of second revolution, if you like, in, in the countryside. And then the Volga is very important as well in the civil war in the 1920s. So the plus of, of industry and, and development and trade uh, also has a negative side, which is that the tensions that come really from the, the great success the Russian Empire had at the end of the 19th century was the boom country. But that led to social tensions and, as we know, to revolution. Mm. As well, the Volga, though, has a... Uh, you, you've mentioned the taxi drivers in Tver. Like, the first thing they want to show you is the Volga. It has a place in the great Russian soul, doesn't it? It does. Um, and you devote some time in the book to talking about the Volga as an inspiration for Russia's artists and writers. And the very sort of strong idea of the, the idea of the river is a mother figure, 
which is amplified through poetry and painting, and then later a quite famous sculpture. Um, <laughs> but how does this idea catch on? Why, why, the, why is the Volga the mother of Russia? Well, it's not unique to personify a river, of course. We have a, a Father mm. Thames in, in London. But I, I think it is rather different. I, I think part of it is just part of a general European movement in the early 19th century of Romanticism. Uh, and the Russians at first feel inadequate compared with Western Europeans because they don't have the, the sort of pretty beauty of, of Switzerland or of Italian uh, remains. And then they rediscover their own... Uh, geography, if you like, and they, they discover that the Volga is beautiful, is spectacular, is wonderful, and indeed that the remains of Bulgar are just as good as the remains of ancient Greece or ancient Rome. So I think it starts off as, as that sort of emotional movement. But I think there's more to it than that. We may have a, a Father Thames in Britain, but I don't think it defends us in quite the same way, whereas the Volga mm. comes across not just as, as a mother, but as a protector. So the Russians can depict themselves in poetry in, in the 19th century as children of the Volga, uh, the, underneath the protective mother of the Volga. And I think that that is something different. And I think it's simply geographical in size. It really is a boundary. I think it first becomes apparent in 1812. Of course, Napoleon doesn't get as far as the Volga, but there's a sense that Russia is, is safe because it's got that barrier. No one can get that far. And then... As we know, in the Second World War, the Germans do get to, to, to the Volga. But even before that, even before Stalingrad, in the 1930s, this film comes out, Volga, Volga, which sort of grossly sentimentalises peasant life in the 1930s, at the time of collectivization. But it also strikes a chord, I think, in that this is something special, this is something Russian, this is something unique. So I think all of that is, is there. Uh, this idea of protection as, as well as mother. You could say some of it comes from above, some of it is created from above. Catherine's mm. Odes as the the, the the tamer of the Volga, the Volga Volga is a film which Stalin apparently was, it was his favourite film. But uh, I don't think you need force it too much. I think anyone who goes to the Volga can't help just be enormously impressed by it, its size. It, it's just, it, it's, it's grandeur, if you like. And that's something that would strike a chord with anybody, whether they were Russian or non-Russian. Indeed. You've mentioned um, the Second World War and, and the Germans getting down to the, getting to the Volga. Um, and of course, this, um, this evokes the, the fierce battle of Stalingrad, which um, for Russians is undoubtedly the turning point in World War II. I'm, I'm married to a former Russian um, officer, so I know that to be true. Um, and you do a marvelous job, I think, of, of bringing us into the maelstrom of, of the battle for uh, Stalingrad, but also showing us that it's not just a physical battle. It's an existential struggle for the very survival of the Soviet Union. And the river is so much a part of that. I don't think I had understood how much until I read the chapter in your book. Um, would you take us through that that notion um, and and how how the Volga sort of plays its part in World War II? Yeah, I, I think it's, I mean, it's not only a turning point for the Soviet Union, it's a turning point in the whole of the Second World War. It, it is the, mm. you know, the, the massive defeat, not just the first defeat, but on such a scale. It, mm. it does change the, the course of the war. And I, I do try to bring the river to the fore, 
And I tried, in fact, not just to talk about Stalingrad. There's also a battle that takes place in Rzhev on, on the Volga in, in the north, which has never got so much interest, really, because it was inconclusive. But you know, hundreds of thousands of men died on, on, in, the, in that battle. It was known as the, the meat grinder. So the, the Volga in the north as well plays this crucial role. I think it's, it's strategic, but it's not just strategic. Stalingrad's built on the western side of, of the river, and the battle takes place on the western side of the river. They never, the German army never fully controls that western side. So there is this sense of, again, of protection, of the Volga protecting people, because the eastern side of, of the river, where the Russian forces were based, from which they launched their attacks, their rocket attacks, where their, their uh, planes were, is, is safe. But I think it, it becomes, for both sides, symbolic as well. There's an account of German officers, when they reached Stalingrad, writing home and saying, we're now at the furthest eastern point of, of the Reich, and beyond this, it's Asia. So they're just the same as Catherine the Great, the if you like. <laughs> <laughs> and from the, the Soviet side, from the Russian side as well, there's a sense that the Volga must not be crossed. Now, actually, mm -hmm. the Germans didn't want to cross it. They probably would have gone south. But it, it becomes sort of embedded. They must not cross it. And there's a very famous poster by somebody called Serov, of a, a soldier, saying, you know, protect Mother Volga. Uh, and, and that becomes very important emotionally, I think, symbolically, and, and, and helps, uh, mustn't help in some way, uh, men mm. continuing to fight this absolutely horrendous battle. So I think on both sides it's very important. After Stalingrad, when the memorials are built to Stalingrad in the in the uh, the nineteen sixties, there is this massive statue of the mother motherland calls, which again shows the mother, the the Russia Soviet Union, as as a, a female figure protecting people, looking over the Volga. She does. She looks east, in fact, not west. Then she can look over mm. the river. But amongst the memorials, there's one picture of Germans on the other side of the Volga, and that's a frieze showing German prisoners of war being led over the river. And I think, again, that, that's very symbolic. That's the only way in which they were able to cross the river was when they'd been defeated. So, yes, in military terms, it's very important. But in, in symbolic terms, I think it, it's almost equally important to both sides. Mm-hmm. Now, in the, the last chapters of your book, you bring us into the present day, um, and it's a pretty disturbing picture of the lasting environmental damage that's happened from these, what we've talked about, these 20th century attempts to tame the Volga. Can you outline some of these for us, and, and is there any hope that this damage might one day be reversed? Yes, I wouldn't want to pretend, of course, that it's only the Volga that's been polluted amongst mm -hmm. world rivers, it's not the case. But I, I think it was particularly acute on, on the Volga, partly because it was such an industrialised part of Russia, and then because of the, the carelessness, really, in, in the Soviet period about pollution, uh, the lack of, of concern of what they were doing, which, which created enormous problems. And the, the building of hydroelectric plants, I mean, helped water supply, electricity, but it's done an enormous damage to the ecology of, of the river and to its fish stocks. Can it be reversed? Well, I think if it is, it has to come from the top. Uh, I'd like to say that uh, local people can do something that people power would work, but I don't think it will. 
it's been rather a, a disappointment, I think, to groups like Greenpeace. They, they've quite, found it quite hard to get a, a footing in, in Russia. And I mm. don't think local groups have the power or the belief, really, that they can change things. And anyway, it is a national river. There's not much point in somebody doing something in Samara if it's not done in the whole river. Mm. So I think it has to come from the top. And the only way it would really come from the top is by asserting how terribly important fishing is in the fishing industry mm-hmm. and the importance of, of sturgeon and of caviar, which has almost been destroyed by pollution on the Volga. So I think that that's the one thing that, that could potentially change policy, but it would have to be, it'd have to be from Moscow. Uh, I don't think it could come from anywhere else. Mm. It's very, very worrying. <laughs> Well, we, we're coming to the end of our time, but um, I do want to finish um, with the last line of your book was was very moving. And you quote a, a 2019 report about environmental damage, actually, along the Volga um, that says, without the Volga, there would be no Russia. And you choose to end with that wonderful phrase. And it sums up your book perfectly, I think. Um, wh- I wonder if in writing the book, you've had that confirmed or... Did anything surprise or delight you while you were researching this book, um, either about the river or or about Russian history? I mean, I think there's probably nothing that can surprise you about Russian history at this point. But um, what what revelations did you find while you were spending time with the Volga? Well, I think it did change my 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 view. I'm always open to, to yeah. new views. It was a different perspective. I, I I set out to see if there were, there would be a different perspective by looking at a region, and I felt I, I did find a different. A perspective and uh, I mean to be honest when I, when I started writing the book I wasn't even sure that I could write a history of the Volga where there would be such continuity uh, and and by the end you know I felt that there was and, and it had been <laughs> worth doing so in that respect uh, I think it was a revelation. Uh, I'm a, a western historian and I've spent most of my time looking at Russia's great power status and looking at Russians and although I knew intellectually there were a lot of non-ethnic Russians within European Russia, I wasn't fully aware of it, I, I think, until I went to Kazan, until I went to, to Chebuksari, until I, I really thought about the consequences of that and the, the difficulty the empire would have in, in controlling that. So I think that that was a revelation. Kazan was a bit of a, a revelation. Uh, it was a wonderful city, a beautiful city. I was a bit surprised to find an enormous mosque inside the Kremlin, the Kremlin, which is that great symbol of Russian Orthodox power, with a cathedral, with walls, with administrative offices, now has a a great big uh, mosque in it as well. And nobody seems to think that this is odd. Tourists look at the mosque, they look at the Orthodox cathedral, they go from one to the other with the tourist guides. But to me, that was just quite startling that it existed and that People had accepted that it existed, accepted there was a, a diversity and somehow one had to, to come to terms with that. So I think that that surprised me. And yes, just the, the sheer breadth of the river, particularly, I think, coming from, from Britain, where our rivers are nothing to write home about, really. But uh, uh, the, the sheer size of it did impress me, as it, as it impressed all travellers. But on a, a simple level, the source also impressed me. I, When I first went to Russia in the 1970s, you were only allowed to go to Moscow and Leningrad, and I was in Leningrad. Mm -hmm. And although since then I've travelled quite a lot, you do tend to travel as a foreigner from city to city, from place to place. Mm -hmm. 
I think this was the first time, really, a friend took us. We just drove through the forest for hours. And I kept thinking, I hope he knows where he's going because there were no <laughs> road signs. And then suddenly there was this little chapel and a, a few stalls selling fridge magnets and dried fish. And it's a beautiful September day. And I thought, well, it is special. I'm really glad I made the effort to, to come to the source as well as to the major cities along, along the river. It's been a privilege. And, and yeah, cities, do, you, do you have a favourite? I think Kazan probably as, as a as, as a city really really struck me. I think I think it's growing so much in popularity. Uh, you know, they they make a great thing about you know the third city. That's right. Um, but it it is such it has so much to offer the visitor. Yes, I was I was very pleased that. Uh, uh, I'm interested in football, and so was everybody in Kazan. And of course, they, that was oh. one of the locations of, of the World Cup. And you, you do hope that the World Cup will open a different view of, of Russia. I mean, ruined now, I suppose, by a pandemic. But everything that I read about the World Cup and about places that people travelled, and many of these are Volga cities. Volgograd mm-hmm. was one of the ones as well that was uh, uh, hosted the English team and, and Kazan. And reports in newspapers and travel reports saying how wonderful these cities were and how friendly people were. And you, you do hope this opens up a, a different view of Russia and the possibility to travel to, to other places in, in Russia. Because people do visit Russia. But it's not easy. It's not easy having to get a visa. No. And then they tend to concentrate inevitably on Moscow and St. Petersburg. And there's so much else to see. And, and indeed, the best way to do that is to jump on a ship on the Volga. Indeed. <laughs> It's one of the more relaxing ways anyway. Professor Hartley, what's next for you? Um, are you going to tackle another river? or? Um... One of my friends facetiously said, I'd done a region and I'd done a river, so now I ought to do a mountain. Oh, for sure. <laughs> but I don't know, is the answer. <laughs> uh, we've had a very difficult time in lockdown. We've been, uh, my husband and I have been really been in, in an isolation for uh, over a, a year uh, and one of the tough. things that that made me do was actually look at some British records because British records are very easily available online. And I, I just started going back to what I'd worked on before, which was the Napoleonic period, and started looking at the way in which Britain and Russia raised armies, the way in which they dealt with society during the Napoleonic Wars, the way in which they dealt with veterans. And I, I don't know, I'm just beginning to think that possibly I could do something comparative there on comparative empires that uh, I can do sitting in my office as well as going on a trip down the Volga. Mm. Well, if if, if, if um, it turns into a book, I hope you'll come back and tell us about it. Oh, thank you. I'd love to. It's been a privilege. <laughs> oh, good. Well, that is about all the time we have today, but this has been a really fascinating discussion. Um, is there a place that listeners can go to find out more about you and your work? Probably the easiest ways is um, the website of the London School of Economics. Uh, Mm -hmm. I'm an emeritus professor, but I'm still listed in the Department of International History under, I think, emeritus staff, former distinguished staff. And that, 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 that tells you everything, including how to contact me. Okay. And of course, um, the Volga, A History of Russia's Greatest River, um, which is out this uh, year from Yale University, is available wherever great books are sold. Thank you so much for joining us today, Professor Hardley. It's been a real privilege to talk to you about the Volga River. It's been fun. Thank you very much. I like like talking about it.
Well, and, and um, I enjoyed so much. I learned so much from this book. I, I read a lot of books about Russian history, and it takes a very rare book to sort of make me sit up and go, oh, did, I hadn't thought about that. Um, so thank you for many hours of enjoyment and um, insight. Well, thank you. And uh, I am your host, Jennifer Yerimeyeva. I will be back soon to discuss another new book with its author. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs>